Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, media trainer and editor of veganbusinessmedia.com, the multimedia blog providing success tips for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. In this episode, I interview David Benzaquin from Plant Based Solutions, an award winning brand management and marketing agency for plant based consumer product companies, headquartered in New York. After more than a decade working in the government and non profit sectors with a focus on education and grassroots advocacy, David immersed himself in the plant based business sector working for a time as a natural products broker before evolving plant-based solutions into its current incarnation. With a team of people who collectively have hundreds of years' experience in marketing, branding, product development, finance, operations and more, the company offers a range of services for pre-market startups right through to huge global brands, including opportunity assessments, business planning and forecasting, new product development, market research, brand creation and a full range of marketing planning and execution. David has also brought together a large network of angel investors keen to support plant-based businesses. In this interview, he talks about the three ways to price your product and the importance of choosing the right one, why having your product in the biggest and highest number of retailers is not necessarily the best strategy for sales or growing your business, the first steps to take before approaching retailers, the pros and cons of working with distribution companies and brokers, why listing too many free-from claims on the front of your packaging can turn consumers away from your product, what investors look for in businesses and what questions you should ask an investor, and much more. Here's the interview with David Benzaquin from Plant-Based Solutions. Hello, David, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) All right. So I begin with asking a question that I ask everybody, and it's about the why, the reasons why they run their business, their vegan-run business. So you uh, run plant-based solutions. Tell me your reasons behind. What's your driving force for doing that? Sure. So I've been vegan for 15 years, and I spent over a decade working in nonprofits and government here in the United States to influence policy and people's behavior around the treatment of animals, particularly around factory farming issues and promoting vegan living. And the reason for that was a deep passion and concern for the way animals were treated, uh, which I still have very strongly, and a belief that animals are just not here for us to use, wear, experiment on, or eat for our own uh, pleasure uh, when they have sentience and every right to uh, live and express themselves the same way we do. And in doing that work in the nonprofit and government world, I absolutely was so motivated, inspired by the missions and the passions of the people before me and around me who taught me so much. But I also realized that I was not having the impact that I wanted to. And that was because the nonprofit world has some inefficiencies. I think it's extremely important and has a lot of value but it really is good for addressing certain parts of this problem. If we look at 
the ultimate goal of changing the world for animals to encourage people to eat more or completely vegan, which I think it is because of the sheer numbers of animals and the, and the level of cruelty that farm animals experience, then education and advocacy, which are the primary tools used by the nonprofit organizations, are an essential component of helping to spread the message and opening people's hearts and minds to such a behavior change. However, for many people, if we don't make the solutions to those problems, the uh, solution to what people should eat instead of meat or dairy or eggs, more accessible, more delicious, more desirable, more affordable, more beautiful, etc., then it's almost impossible for them to understand how they could make the change, especially for those who are isolated or haven't been surrounded by these uh, communities prior. So I mapped the food system and I realized that the education, advocacy, and fundraising that I had been primarily doing in the nonprofit world was very similar to marketing. For the first time, we have products that we can absolutely say can compete with meat, dairy, and eggs on par on taste and on quality. And I'm proud to be able to represent those products and to say, we now have these great products. It's time to make them beautiful. It's time to tell their story. It's time to get them out there and help people appreciate them. And so before I was marketing ideas and selling ideas through fundraising and advocacy, and now I'm doing that for products. And I believe it's a fantastic way to show people that there are products that are just as good, just as delicious, and can meet their same desires in tradition and culture and experience um, so that the other products are moot. Let's make it so that meat, dairy, and eggs and other animal-based products are just nonsensical and no longer needed in the, mar- in the market. Fantastic. I love that. That's sort of a similar, it's interesting you said that's a similar journey that I've come to, particularly around the whole, you know, we are selling ideas, we are marketing ideas, and sometimes that can be a bit tricky for activists to get their head around. And I was going to ask you this later on in the interview, but I think I'll ask you it now because it kind of feels like the right place. I mean, what are your thoughts on, you, you very much come from, like you say, a non-profit activist background, similar to myself, and some in the vegan community are critical of what they're calling, you know, vegan capitalism or vegan consumerism, and they argue that it's not the answer, you know, to creating a fair and just world for animals. I'd love to get your take on that. Sure. I think that critiques of capitalism or critiques of market-based systems are fair and should be considered. I also think that regardless of what we think of those systems at a macroeconomic level, the reality is that people have to make decisions based on their ability financially, and people have limited resources And they're making real life decisions, hard decisions every day between paying for food or paying for rent, healthcare or medicine and or healthcare or, you know, travel to work, whatever it is. And for us to ignore that reality and not uh, put ourselves in the in the shoes of the consumer and and the person that needs to make those decisions is just unrealistic, regardless of whether we'd like to see a world in which. Uh, systems weren't driven by these forces. You know, Johnny or Susie today have to go to the store to buy food for their kids. They have a limited wallet size and limited resources to be able to make those decisions. And we have to show them that this is the right decision to make. And uh, that requires that we engage with the realities of our current context. 
Brilliant. That's a really good answer. I actually learned quite a bit from that myself. So thank you for articulating that very, very well. So that leads me into the next question. Interesting. It's about the cost because, you know, a lot of the time and certainly a lot of vegan business owners that I speak to and probably yourself as well, a lot of the times we see that vegan food and and other products, uh, particularly more so if they're healthy or they're they're organic as well on top of that, they're more expensive. And uh, how can business owners, ethical business owners, deal with that challenge? to stay competitive and attract clients and get their their foods to the masses and not just you know the kind of the middle classes who can afford those kind of products what's your thoughts on that absolutely so as many of us know the the reasons for these cost disparities are twofold first in many countries especially in the united states and other industrialized countries governments have put in place insane, ridiculous subsidies and protections for the animal abusing industries, which allow their products to be cheaper at the shelf than healthier, more sustainable products. This is particularly ridiculous when you take into account the fact that to grow a pound of meat or a gallon of milk, you need to use so many more plants than we would be feeding to people directly. So it's ridiculous and it's obvious that the math shouldn't add up that way. Unfortunately, that's the situation we're in. And we have people, fortunately, in the nonprofit world and the advocacy world who are fighting to change those realities. At the same time, the other major factor in costs is scale, efficiencies of scale. And right now, the sustainable and healthy and ethical businesses have less scale than the status quo, which is destructive. And so we have a disadvantage in that way. But there are ways to overcome this. First, as you're thinking about the kind of products that you're going to bring to market, I work in consumer products, so that's the context that I'm most familiar with. As you're thinking about the products that you're bringing to market, get to know the, um, get to know the, the inputs that you're using and their, not only their prices, but also their stability. One of the advantages we have, unless there are government uh, protections that keep prices stable in the other industries, is that our products tend to be less fluctuating in price than the competitor. So if we think about meat, dairy, and eggs and other animal-based products, there are so many inputs that go into growing and making those goods that they are much more, their pricing is much more volatile. That's why you'll see the price of milk have or double over a single year. And you don't see that very often with fruits or vegetables or seeds or grains. So we have a benefit in that way. When somebody is thinking about how to price their product, there are three pricing mechanisms that one can use. One is called cost plus pricing, and that is where you identify all of the inputs that go into producing your product or providing your service. So you say, okay, I need this many people at this rate. I need this many ingredients. This is how much they each cost for one unit. I need this packaging. You know, you calculate all of your costs, your cost of goods sold, and then you add a particular margin. Different industries have different standard margins for what is an appropriate amount or an expected amount to charge above that price. In the food industry or in packaged goods in the United States, we tend to use a 40% margin over the cost of goods as the price that the uh, business would sell to either a distributor or to a retailer or to a consumer. And Uh, When thinking about those margins, it's important for anybody who's looking at this to know the difference between margin and markup. It's a little complicated to go in on the phone, go on 
to go through on the phone, but make sure that you're using margin and not markup. And there are simple Google searches you can do to figure out the difference because it will make a huge difference in your price and how much money you're taking home. The second kind of pricing model is called value-based pricing. And value-based pricing is determining what people would be willing to pay for something. So I say, you know, and this is what a lot of ethical businesses use. They say, well, people care about what I'm doing and they believe in this. So they're willing to pay a premium for my product or service. There is truth in that. However, it is very easily skewed. And so I caution people very strongly against using value-based pricing or at least being very cautious about doing so because you can easily be skewed by some outliers. If you are surrounded by people, by a small community of people who are wholly committed to the same values as you are, when you're determining what they would be willing to pay for the price, it will be very different than what the average consumer would be. And if your audience is to sway people's behavior outside of the lifestyle that you engage in, you know, non-vegans, for example, then you need to make sure that it's priced in such a way that they would be willing to pick Mm. up that veggie burger instead of that meat burger, not just that your vegan friend would. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then the third kind of pricing model is called competitive pricing. And that's where you map out the category of goods or services like yours. You figure out what everybody else is charging and you determine where you want to be in relation to them. So you could choose to be extremely competitive and at a similar cost. You could choose to be um, at a premium so that people recognize that you're a little bit more valuable and worth investing in, or you could try to be cheaper and compete on price as a main attribute. All three have their merits. Um, When doing pricing with our clients, we strongly recommend that you look at least at competitive and cost plus pricing. Cost plus pricing is essential because you need to know that you'll cover your costs. Competitive pricing is important because you need to understand what's realistic. And then value-based pricing has its place, but it's really only valuable if you can get a very good dipstick of the market and of your intended consumer. If you can afford to do really scientific, quantitative you know, research and get consumer feedback in that way, you know, and you determine that half of the population you're looking at is willing to pay $7 instead of five, maybe that has value, but otherwise it's a little bit more risky. Um, the last thing on this is that when somebody is thinking about setting their pricing, because efficiencies of scale are going to be a major factor in long-term viability, it's very common that a business, particularly in the consumer product space, will start at a lower profit or no profit than they will end up at. So when you're speaking to your suppliers, your ingredients, the co-manufacturing partners that are manufacturing your goods for you, your label and packaging suppliers, find out from them not just what it costs to buy that small amount today, but at what point they would give you a discount for purchasing in higher volume and try to leverage that. So if you find out that buying a drum of soy sauce is cheaper than buying gallon after gallon after gallon, figure out if you'll use enough of it quickly enough quickly enough to justify putting that investment in because it may save you a lot of money in the long run. 
Mm, that's a good point. And as well, I think with some of the business owners I've interviewed, um, if they've been in a similar industry, they've even tried, looked at maybe, you know, um, buying in bulk together. Like if they're making somewhat different products, but using the same materials or ingredients, they may be kind of band together and, and buy in bulk in order to get those those discounts. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah, cool. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for explaining all that. I think that's that's so, so helpful because I think that is something that a lot of people do stumble over, particularly new business owners without a huge amount of experience. So I really appreciate you being so comprehensive there. So another challenge as well that particularly, and I know you work uh, a lot, particularly in the, the food space, is that people are very keen or a lot of businesses are very keen, plant-based businesses, to get their products into retailers, whether that's health food stores, speciality grocers, or even the big supermarket chains. What advice can you offer along, along those lines? Sure. So my first piece of advice is that it is essential that you identify what the best place to be in would be. Everybody thinks, oh, wouldn't it be great to have my product on the biggest stores shelf or in the most stores, but that's not necessarily the best strategy. Selling does not mean making money, and you can often spend a lot of money getting into places where they will not get off the shelf and you will waste money you know, having to market something that won't move or having to replace wasted products or other things. So the first thing is get to know who your exact target customer is. Define that person. Where do they shop? What are their shopping patterns? Why would they be buying this? And how frequently would they be buying it? And then figure out what location matches up with that consumer. So if you're targeting a consumer who is 25 and extremely active online and has grown up in that environment and does a lot of their shopping online, well, then maybe selling on Amazon is very worthwhile. But if you're selling to an older customer who does not spend as much time online and still buys in a very traditional model, maybe selling at the grocery store would make more sense or a particular kind of store. So that's the first thing. The second thing is at the beginning, you know, in the long term for consumer products, it's almost imperative that somebody get into, if you're going into retail, that one gets into distribution with a formal distribution company at some point. The efficiencies they have and the relationships they have with retailers make it much easier to get into those stores. However, they are in business as well, and it costs them money to bring in new customers. So for them to take you on, they have to see that you have some traction and a track record of success. So in the first few months or half a year of your business, you're going to have to hoof it. You're going to have to hit the streets and go to local retailers and really, really sell them on the merits and then leverage that to go to a distributor or to other bigger retailers. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So you recommend going to, in the initial stage, is actually going to retailers and supermarkets directly um, and then down the track, go to a distributor. I think that's really the only option, at least here in the West. In the United States, the, the normal distributor, even a regional or local smaller distributor, will really only consider a business that already has 20, 25, 30 stores that they're selling into. And so oh, okay. right. a major plan of efficiency is when you're planning to enter the market, don't just haphazardly go to any place. And I don't just mean because the store might not be the right fit, like I mentioned at the beginning. I also mean that there are major efficiencies in being a small set of stores that are within uh, proximity to each other. So decide what your ideal store is, identify 10 or 15 stores that you think would be perfect for your customers and your product, 
and then focus on those. Get into those, put the limited resources you have into driving very high sales at those locations, what are called turns, because the shelves are turned over when you sell through product. So focus on getting high turns. And then when you can go to another store and say, I'm selling you know, 20 units a week at every store, they don't care if you're in 10 stores or a million, they know that you'll do well in their place. They would rather see that than you say, I'm selling five units in a million stores than I'm selling 20 units in a quarter million stores. Because to them, it shows that the potential is much greater. And that's true for investors, for distributors, for retailers. So focus on a small set, crush it in those stores with really good sales, put your dollars into direct marketing to consumers that will drive sales. So in-store sampling and other activities that are close to the point of sale to drive that success and then leverage that to convince other people to support you. Brilliant. That makes a lot of sense. Is that the same? Is distributor similar to a broker then? Because I believe you worked as a, a broker for natural and organic products. Is that right? I did work as a broker for several years before I, before I uh, converted the business into a marketing agency and brand management agency. And brokers are a little different than distributors they are actually a result of, I would say, the failure or the change in the distribution model. Um, traditionally, distributors used to not only physically carry your goods from your factory to the store, they would also market and sell them to the store. The truck driver would go into the store and help the retailer shelve it in the right place and make sure it looks good. They would call them to remind them to reorder. All these things that are essential to a brand's success were happening within distributors. As the industry matured and distributors started aggregating and merging, um, in this country at least, we've seen a major, major reduction in the level and amount of services that are provided by distributors. So they have, there are so few distributors who control the lion's share of the market that they're not really worried which products a, a retailer will buy from them. They want to make sure they have a mix of the best products and the ones that sell the best, but they don't care if you buy the rice or the, you know, the, the brown rice or the basmati. It makes no difference to their bottom line. So they are not putting extra time into convincing retailers to order your product. They have thousands in their catalog. And so a broker is a commission-based salesperson in addition to or external of the distributor who will go to the stores, get them to bring it in, get them to reorder and make sure that happens. Got it. So the, the person who owns the product, so you as a business owner would hire a broker if you Correct. want to. Got and it. And there are okay. freelancers and then there are full agencies that do this as well. Right. And obviously they take a cut. So then your profit margins are obviously going to be lower after you've paid the distributor and the retailer and the broker. Yes. Uh, having yeah. been a broker... Uh, I can say that the model is very tough for both the broker and the customer. I think the model is quite broken. It's an unfortunate <laughs> reality that it can be needed right. sometimes, but brokers also to survive have to have many, many different products in their portfolio. And if you're an earlier stage business, you can get lost in the shuffle quite easily. If Got you it. can afford it, I believe that nobody can sell your product better than you can or than somebody that you train and manage directly. It can be more expensive to carry the weight of a full-time or multiple full-time salaries, but I do believe that having somebody who's dedicated to your team is the best scenario when possible. 
Got it. Perfect. That's brilliant. This is this is great stuff. So, in terms of, we talked about you know some of the I guess advantages of getting into um, into retailers. What are some of the downsides? I know, for example, you know I've sort of heard of you know not so great stories here. You know about a company that's here in Australia where I'm based that's had issues with some of the big supermarkets in terms of margins and constantly you know kind of trying to push them down lower. Um, and another one which will take on a vegan brand, and if it does well, they ditch that particular brand and then bring their own house version in which is cheaper and usually lower quality is that something that you've seen and I mean I don't know if you have any advice about how people can deal with that or is that sort of just bad luck or is that a kind of common downside to being in retailers particularly large supermarkets so there there are two different issues at hand there the first is related to margins and that's a major issue in the United States the traditional margins are I have my cost of goods I add my 40% margin, I sell it to the distributor. The distributor adds another 30 or so percent margin on top of that, and then it gets to the retailer. And before the consumer ever sees it, the retailer adds another 30, 35, 40% margin. So your price to the consumer can easily be triple or quadruple what you made it for or sold it for. And that's a real problem because it means you're taking home a very small piece of the pie. The reality is, If you want to scale, distributors and retailers have access to consumers that, you know, traditional online businesses don't yet. So people are still shopping primarily in traditional brick and mortar retail and the volumes are there and the efficiencies of having somebody else display your product and handle stocking it and all those things and ship it and all those things that you would have to do yourself if you were selling directly to consumers cost a lot of money. On the other hand, um, selling direct to consumers online or at farmers markets or other direct to consumer models, subscription-based models, allows you to keep a lot more of the margin. So if the retailer would have sold something for $10 and you make it for two, you can sell it for 10 and nobody's going to judge that. And you get to keep that full $8 instead of having given that all away to the retailer and distributor. On the other hand, you will reach fewer people and you will spend time on fulfillment, customer service, and having to acquire those those customers that the retailer and distributor have already done for you. So a store already has a traffic base that comes to their store every day to shop. And that is kind of marketing on your behalf. Whereas if you are doing your own, you have to get people to come to your site or to your stall at the farmer's market. So there's a difference and there's a, there's a benefit to both models. Um, but it's really about figuring out what you want to do. The one thing I'll say is that selling in smaller scale direct to consumer allows you to reach profit, can allow you to reach profitability more quickly. Um, it can take a lot longer and much more time and money to grow and be profitable in traditional retail. However, the long term um, scale and size that you can reach is usually much smaller if you're selling direct to consumer than if you're going in traditional outlets. So the traditional model gives you advantages of reaching more people and making more money in the longer term, becoming a bigger business, but not necessarily becoming a quickly profitable business. Got it. Fantastic. Fantastic. So we've talked about some of the challenges um, facing, um, particularly, you know, people who make vegan pr- uh, food products. What are some of the key mistakes you see plant-based food businesses make? Hmm. So there, <laughs> there are quite a few. Um, I think, <laughs> I don't know that it's, 
I don't know that it's specific to plant-based food. Well, I think it's true about most healthy and sustainable foods. There's a tendency to speak so much about the attributes that we care about that we forget what's important to the consumer. And so I see some packages in stores that will have 15 different health claims on the front panel. You know, it'll say gluten-free and vegan and organic and this and that and free of this, that, X, Y, and Z. And at a certain point, you have to wonder, is the consumer actually motivated by that? Or are they thinking that it's bringing them back to the days of this product probably tastes like cardboard? Because if it's free of so many things, (laughs) the average consumer is going to think it's free of taste too. Um, They also have associations with those attributes and something being more expensive or less value-based. So I'm not suggesting that one doesn't promote their core values and and the things that are most differentiating about their product, but focus on the ones that are really impactful. And I don't necessarily think that the ones that we care about may be the most impactful. It really depends on the product market. So, you know, Sabra, the hummus company, the world's largest hummus company, realized that even though all hummuses were gluten-free by definition, nobody else in their category of spreads and dips had made that claim yet. And they realized that was a growing consumer concern among uneducated consumers who were seeking that label for validation of their lifestyle. And they put those words on their packaging and it changed the game for them. They doubled their sales. I mean, they were already huge and they just skyrocketed even more. So that's not because that's what matters most to them. It's because they saw that opportunity. So labeling and thinking about communicating the most important messages and not flooding the consumer with a million ideas that distract them is really important. Um, The other thing that I think we make a mistake of is something I alluded to earlier, which is thinking about what we would want or what people in our immediate surroundings would want and not about the people we're trying to reach. If the consumer you're trying to reach is so different than you, make sure that you're appealing to them. We talked in the book a little bit about and in the blog a little bit about the use of the word vegan, for example. And I have, I'm very proud to be vegan. I think that it is, you know, because I think veganism is inherently encompassing of human and, and, uh, you know, non-human and human animal concerns and other issues. I'm, I'm proud of that label that I believe identifies a a lifestyle of compassion and uh, commitment to a higher good. That said, sometimes it is a very powerful messaging tool and sometimes it's not. And knowing your audience is really important. If you're a company like Impossible Foods and you're trying to sell the bleeding burger to consumers who would otherwise be going to McDonald's or going to the steakhouse, yelling about the fact that it's vegan is probably not the most effective messaging tool. If you're trying to reach your own community, then sure. So some service providers are providing services to vegans. You know, or to, you know, my company's called Plant-Based Solutions because we are reaching plant-based customers. We're not serving the consumer ultimately. We're helping, we're serving the businesses and reaching the consumer. So our audience is plant-based. That's why we made that decision. But for some folks, that may not be the case. So knowing that is really important. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I know, like, for example, as a consumer, if I go to my like big supermarket, if I look at a product and I, I pick it up, like, for example, if I want a snack bar. Now, there's a couple of paleo bars there and I look at the ingredients and I think, well, it looks like it's vegan, but it doesn't have the word vegan on it. And then I pick up another one and it says, you know, paleo and it does say vegan on it. I guess for me, I'm more inclined to buy the one that just just because it says vegan on it. So it's kind of it's an interesting one, isn't it? And I guess that comes back to, you know, who who your market is but also I guess you know vegans also shop in in supermarkets but um yeah it's it's an interesting one so in yeah. terms of um you know vegan uh, businesses so what if someone wants to start up a business but they're already in they're employed at the moment what would you say are the key things they need to take into account before making that leap from employment to running their own business uh first is financial runway uh, how much can you, you know, how long can you afford to spend investing all of your resources into getting that business off the ground and um, not expecting that you will immediately be bringing enough money to replace the income that you had previously? Second is really in any business, understanding who you're serving and what they're looking for and why your service or good is going to be better or uh, that they that, that that consumer or that or that uh, purchaser will recognize that your service or good is better uh, than what's out there already, and um, I think those those are the two key ones. And and in deciding what those things are, it's really all about research and getting to know the market. There are super costly ways to do research. I mean, focus groups and you know massive surveys with really statistical significance are really expensive. But there are also great ways to get research in grassroots ways. When I started my business, I did 115 informational interviews in one year. I interviewed every single person I could find who worked in food or in marketing or in sales or distribution because I wanted to know this industry inside and out. And it was not something that I had you know, worked in traditionally. And so I learned it in the field while I was working full time and gained as much information as I could and then crafted and tweaked and changed my business model accordingly. One also has to be willing to pivot and to recognize when a model is not viable or not sustainable. That was a key decision I made when I started my business. I started my business as a broker. I didn't start my business as a broker because I wanted to do sales in my career. I really didn't. But when I entered the marketplace, I realized that for a lot of companies, even the vegan companies that were run by my friends, they wanted to see me prove myself. And for them to pay a project-based fee or a retainer for marketing for somebody who hadn't shown that they did marketing, even if the work I had done was, diff was similar, the words were different. So they wanted to know that I could prove myself. By offering to work on a commission basis, I was able to prove to them that I had value and that I could do the work. And so for a number of months, that's what I did, knowing that it was at a loss. I invested my savings into starting the business in a way that was not going to be immediately viable, but that would give me an in into the market and gain people's trust and help me gain experience. And then as soon as I had built enough trust to do so, I pivoted and I said, I'm no longer doing sales. And I did. I had to say, this business stops here and this new one begins. And that was really important. There are a lot of times that, um, you know, think about what you want to achieve 
and then decide how to do that and be willing to reconsider if the market shows differently. That's so important. That's wonderful. And I think you're actually a fantastic example of that, of really walking your talk, because, you know, I didn't really know all that. I just kind of assumed that you'd been, you know, doing this forever because, you know, you are so knowledgeable and so experienced. And that's really obviously shown as, you know, um, you know, you are very trustworthy because you really do know your stuff. So I think that's that's a really, really great example. You're a perfect example of that. Now, one of the businesses oh, you touched on, you know, having the, the finances, you know, to be able to to do certain things and to start and, and, and grow a business. One of the services you offer is, I believe, helping businesses to secure investment. Um, how do you determine whether a business is ready to approach investors? What do you look for? So different investors are looking for different things in terms of a, uh, how proven a business is in its success. Some investors will only invest in a business when it's profitable and has shown real success in the marketplace. Some are willing to take a higher risk and come in earlier and invest in a great idea, but it's not just a great idea. And I think that's something, you know, people have brilliant ideas every day and they always think, aha, I've, you know, developed the better mousetrap or sorry, horrible, horrible analogy. <laughs> um, you know, I've developed the better, the better humane mousetrap or I've developed yeah, the better <laughs> whatever it is. And that is fantastic, but it's only one piece of the problem. So I think a, an investor is really looking for an, an incredible team or individual that has either a very strong track record directly in that industry or at least experience that is relevant and um, a proven track record that shows that they have the education, the capabilities, and the expertise in their market to tackle this problem and that they are aware of the weaknesses they have and that they are willing to address that. So if you're a starting business, you might be a solo entrepreneur that has a lot of sales experience, but no marketing or branding experience. Okay. But when you go to that investor, are you willing to say, this is an area that I would like to grow in? Part of the investment will be to bring in this resource, either from an agency or a part-time or a full-time person devoted to that part of my business. That's really important. Team is essential and it often gets overlooked by, by businesses when they approach uh, investors. The other thing they're looking for is that you really understand your marketplace. You really understand um, the likelihood of success, your competitors, and not just that you think consumers will like what you're doing and be willing to pay for it, but that you can show that tangibly. You know, um, you have to understand who you're competing with, even if you think your product or service is brand new and better than anything else out there. When the internet came around, just because it was completely different than what was there before, it does not mean that it didn't have to compete with Encyclopedia Britannica. It still did because consumers were buying that and they had to be educated. And the internet companies had to spend money to acquire consumers and educate them about the value of what they were doing to convince them to throw away the books or recycle them and focus their new attention on this much more expensive machine. So we have to think about the marketplace and the likelihood of success. The next thing is they want to know that you've thought about profitability, not in terms of some grandiose long-term vision, but they want to know that if you sell one unit of a good, or if you provide a service one time, can you show them that the unit economics of that service or good are such that you can show profitability? So if I, it costs me 20 cents and I sell it for a dollar, I show profit. But they want to know that you've considered all your costs and that you can prove that. 
because the fact that you could make a billion dollars in revenue is uninteresting to them if you're going to be losing. It's not only uninteresting, it's terrifying to them if you're going to be losing a penny on every single sale. So that's really important. And if you're not going to be profitable tomorrow, that's okay. But you need to be able to show them at what point do my cost of goods because of efficiencies or anything else reduce to the point where I will be profitable? Can I show them that opportunity? So that's really important. Um, and get to know your investor, uh, potential investors, and understand if their interests, their values, and their investment thesis and model are aligned with what you're doing. Yeah, that's a good point. I was going to ask you about that on the flip side. What should vegan businesses look for? And I think that's interesting. What do you think about like Shark Tank? Because there's been a few businesses on Shark Tank and, you know, some have got investment and they've taken it. Others got a deal and then walked away from it because it wasn't a fit. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think Shark Tank is uh, a fascinating uh, entertainment tool to give people a modicum of information about the investment world. I think that it's really grossly uh, inaccurate to a lot of realities <laughs> of what investment looks like. Um, people do not make a pitch and then get investments of hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, or even tens of thousands of dollars within minutes. Um, the show is taped over many hours, but more importantly, after the show, after the, uh, when the show has aired, there have already been many months between the original taping and the show airing of the investors and the entrepreneurs going back and forth on what's called due diligence, where the right. investor will be studying the business to see if they really actually want to follow through with that investment. And the entrepreneur has that same opportunity. Um, and that will be true in any investment scenario. In a traditional investment scenario, it can take four, six, or more months to raise capital. So that's the other thing. When you're thinking about raising money, don't do it last minute. Really plan out ahead of time and get all your materials ready and your pitch ready. Identify the right investors and then prepare for some time before the money will come in. Um, the thing to look for, I suggest, in, in finding investors, obviously values. You want to know that they're not going to try to take over your business and change the core reasons that you were founded um, you don't want them to try to turn you into a non-vegan business or something like that. Another thing is how long they intend to hold on to the investments they make. So some investors are looking to make a quick profit and flip. So they would buy a equity in your business, and then as soon as they can, they want to get rid of it. That can be a real problem if they're expecting you to pay them out on a very short timeline, and you need their investments to... Um, realize its potential over longer term. So find out how long they're willing to hold on to it and figure out if that matches with your needs. Mm, Another that's thing a really is, good point. Yeah. Yeah. We have investors, we have investors in our syndicate of vegan investors who will hold investments for two or three years, which is a pretty traditional venture capital model. And we have others who say, we're willing to hold on to it for eight to 10 years because we want to be your long-term partner. So those things are important. And the other thing I would say is in looking at investors, in addition to their values and their investment model, figure out what kind of involvement and what kind of support they expect to offer or want to offer in the business. Sometimes an entrepreneur wants an investor who will be hands-off, and there may be benefits to that. If they really know their business and they don't want interference, find out if the investors are looking to be very involved, looking to be active participants in decisions which can be great or it can be a hassle. On the other hand, 
investors, in addition to raw capital, can provide incredible strategic value. So we have investors in our, in our network of investors who have themselves been hugely successful food entrepreneurs or successful in finance or in law or in a bunch of other areas, and they may be willing to devote some of their time or expertise or connections to the business in addition to the dollars that they're going to put in. That's really important. And then finally, find out, can they help you raise other capital? Do they have relationships with other investors that they can bring to you? Um, and are they willing to extend or reinvest in the future? Often investors, not always, but some investors will want to retain a business for a long term. And as new investors come in, their share of the pie is in a shrink. So if I put in $10,000 for 10%, as the business grows and more investors come in, my $10,000 is no longer worth 10%. Some investors will want to maintain or even grow the piece of the pie as new rounds of investment happen. So you might say to them, hey, you know, your $10,000 is about to be worth 4%. Are you willing to re-up so that you maintain that share and help us grow in this next round? And often they will. Brilliant. That's wonderful. Now, I believe you actually held an event um, not, not so long ago where you brought together um, some investors and actual businesses. And I heard that was a, a huge success. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what it entailed and some of the outcomes? Sure. So at the Natural Products Expo West, which is the largest trade show in the world for natural and sustainable products, including many different vegan foods and other products, um, which was in Anaheim in March, we held a networking event between uh, investors with vegan values and vegan product companies that were looking to raise capital. We had companies of all sizes, from startups to businesses who had already raised significant capital with many different kinds of products. And uh, the networking was fantastic. We had some really great introductions made. I'm sure that no investments were made on the spot. That wasn't the intention. Um, it was really more of a, a warm introduction, speed dating, and starting to <laughs> seed that information so that they could follow the conversation. And we do know for a fact that several, several of those conversations did result in investment actually quite quickly, within a month or two, and, oh, and wow. additional within a few months later. So we're very excited about that event. Uh, we plan on repeating those events in the future in either that or similar forms. Um, at the future expo events and others. And uh, we're, we're proud to serve as a uh, bridge between the investment community that shares these values and the entrepreneurs who are starting these businesses that are changing the world. That's wonderful. You're doing some amazing stuff. I'm feeling so inspired by, by what you're doing, David. Um, so in terms of competition, we are in the midst of a either a vegan or a plant-based revolution, which means there's a lot of players now, a lot of new players in the arena, as well as some of the original ones, both, you know, ethical vegan brands and non-vegan run businesses that are, you know, wanting to get in on this trend. What advice do you have for plant-based businesses, or vegan businesses, on how they can stand out both within and outside of the vegan business arena? So I think being very aware of your competition is essential, but worrying about them is less so. It's not about, you know, fretting that they're going to take your market. It's about knowing what they're doing and doing it better so that they can't. And I think that's really important, whether it's a vegan business or a non-vegan business, 
understand what they're offering, understand what's really wanted in the marketplace, be open to pivoting, be open to investing in the right things to grow your business or to shift your business if needed and, and plan accordingly. So um, I think that's crucial with any kind of business. I'm not sure that it's specific to the vegan market. I'm really excited about the growth in the vegan market in every area from the service providers like what we do to the products. I think it's healthy and it allows us to constantly improve. Um, I think that new products force old products to uh, reevaluate and think about how they can do better. And that can only help animals. So I'm very excited about it. And I think there's a lot of room for a lot more people to do the work I do and what many others in the space do. Um, and that's very exciting. Fantastic, fantastic. So in terms of marketing, um, we've touched on the the issue around, you know, using the word vegan and plant-based, which is fantastic. Now, let's talk a bit about your business because you say you run plant-based solutions and tell us a bit about uh, what are some of the benefits of working with an agency such as yourself? So I think the benefits of working with an agency like ourselves are really being able to leverage the best industry expertise at a cost that would not be realistic with larger agencies or with um, full-time employees. So our model is we really serve as an outsourced chief marketing officer or suite uh, for an early stage company. And we specialize in consumer products between uh, pre-revenue businesses that have done no sales to companies that are $10 million in annual sales or larger. Um, we do work with companies that are larger than that, but we really love working with upstarts that are, uh, you know, have a huge opportunity to change the game, but who really need help at an early stage. Our model is based on bringing the best in the market at a competitive price um, by getting the best in the business to give us exclusive rates um, so that they can provide our clients with the best work without um, additional cost. Um, that is a lot more competitive than a lot of the larger agencies that have a hundred people on their payroll that they have to cover costs for, regardless of whether they're committed to a project or not. And it's very different than hiring a full-time chief marketing officer or a strategist who could cost easily in the mid six figures to provide that work. So, um, I think there is, you know, often early stage businesses don't have the money and don't want to have to give away so much of their equity to bring in expertise in-house. And working with an agency like ours allows them to get that value in a much more reasonable, affordable way. And just the best practices. The people we, we have on our team have the most incredible experience from executive levels of the largest food companies in the world. And that's how we've built our model. We're looking to take those who have worked on the dark side um, leverage their incredible <laughs> experience and apply it to good. So we have people from Coca-Cola and Kellogg and Duracell and Kraft and all these big companies that are saying, I'm glad I learned all those tools, but now it's time to do something worthwhile with it. And I want to commit the rest of my life to undoing the damage I did or to applying those incredible experiences to good. And we want to work with companies to bring them that value um, in a way that they wouldn't be able to afford or get otherwise. That's wonderful. So what you're saying, David, then instead of uh, you actually having employees, are you kind of hiring, like bringing in consultants on a project by project basis? Is that, am I understanding that right? So we have our core team and then we have spent 
the years that we've been in business vetting the best people in the industry, whether they're freelancers or they're moonlighters or larger agencies or whatever it is, and either because of um, their values and their desire to do good or because of the opportunity we bring them and bringing them so much business because we really value and work closely with our contractors, um, they are willing to and agree to give us incredibly competitive rates, exclusive rates that they can't give to anybody else. And um, that allows us to bring the work of the best people in the industry with our project management and um, strategic expertise over it at a cheaper rate than one would get that same work without our value added directly from that person in the market. So if you want a logo and you would spend X for it, um, we'll get it for you for less than X. And we're going to use all of our expertise to make sure that it's the best logo you will ever have on time and done with real thoughtfulness about its impact in the market. Okay, I've got it. I've got it. So do you have anyone when you mentioned you have a core team? So does that mean you have some employees? Yes. You do. Okay. So how do you go about finding and keeping experienced, motivated staff? So uh, I've been very fortunate in that uh, people are very excited about this space. Uh, I actually haven't had, I've, I've had more difficulty with uh, having to let folks know that we're we're not expanding as quickly as they'd like us to because we're getting job applications all the time for positions that we're not yet hiring for that we look forward to in the future uh, and we are planning on growing later this year so I'll put that plug out there that we expect to be hiring in the next six months or year uh, quite aggressively um, but Fantastic. really I think the employees that we have and have had in the past have been so motivated by both of our both our mission but also our commitment to work quality you know we have a strong mission that underpins what we do but we approach the work with rigor and with commitment to being the best agency out there i want to be able to sit in the room next to the most uh, to the biggest advertising and marketing agencies that have a hundred people on staff and they're all you know white men in suits and they can sit in the room and sound real fancy And I want to go in there and say, we're scrappy and we're nimble, but we're damn good at what we do. And we will be as good as they will without the cost. That's our commitment. And we fight for our clients. We make sure they get the best work every single time. We do not like letting clients leave us unthrilled. Um, It is essential to us and we will do whatever it takes. And I think that commitment inspires our team to feel good about what they do both in terms of mission, but also in terms of being proud of the quality they put out there and the, and what, it, and, and our perception in the market. People know that we're like that because we've had um, wonderful, wonderful experiences with our clients and, and we're proud of that. And I think our employees are motivated by the, by the intellectual and professional rigor uh, combined with that commitment to always maintaining our values and ensuring that they are central to what we do. Perfect. So there's a lot of marketing agencies out there and it can be a, a bit of a minefield. So I'm curious, in terms of some of the marketing strategies you've used for plant-based solutions, what have been the most successful? Marketing for our own business? For your own business, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question. And there's, a, there's an adage that uh, marketing and branding agencies are the worst at marketing and branding themselves. And I think there's some <laughs> truth to that. Uh, we've been working on our website revamped for about six months or more now. Uh, we have our new logo and all of our new branding ready to go out and our website is just on hold because we've been so busy taking care of our clients who always come first. Um, I think that, 
you know, for us, it's really been about word of mouth. Um, I'm a uh, really, really um, active networker, not in the CD sales kind of way, but I love the work I do. I love the industry and I love getting to know people. And so I'm at every event and I meet everybody I can. And I do podcasts like this, which I appreciate the opportunity to do. And um, I network, I get to know the industry really well and I meet everybody as, as soon as I can. So it's really been that it's really been just about hitting the streets and um, getting to know people. We find a lot of our businesses primarily not on the consumer side, but on the trade side and the business side. So we spend a lot of our time at, at, at business events, at uh, trade shows and events of that nature where we network with other professionals who we can collaborate with um, or who might refer us business when they have an, an area where they're not experts in or where com- companies themselves will be looking for those kinds of services. So those are a big focus for us. Um, and uh, yeah, we've also, it's also about figuring out exactly what your value is. So for us, we recognize that investment was a key void in the market for a lot of smaller companies. You know, the, the news talks about the handful of companies who've raised unbelievable sums of money. That's fantastic. Um, but there are hundreds or thousands of other businesses who haven't had that opportunity yet and who might be just as deserving. So we saw that as an opportunity and we started outreaching to investors and to others who we thought could be investors and building out that network so that we could uh, let folks know that we can bring that value to them. Things like that. You know, we've, we've really looked at what do people need and not tried to reinvent the wheel. You know, we don't do sales. We don't, you know, help to um, build up factories or open restaurants or other things that I know other people would be fantastic at because we know our, we know our experience and expertise and we focus on that. Got it. Wonderful. And you're certainly developing or have developed an outstanding, excellent reputation within the plant-based sector. So um, that's wonderful. So final couple of questions around kind of mindset. Um, A lot of business owners, you know, running your own business, it said that, you know, it's the biggest form of personal development because it forces you out of your comfort zone. What personal qualities do you believe, David, are essential to running a successful business and staying the course over the long term? Uh. I think humility is very important. That's always a funny thing for somebody to say because it sounds really arrogant to say it. Um, but I think that being aware of one's own strengths and weaknesses and uh, not being too sensitive to that is really, really important. You will have failures. <laughs> I have failed in my business, not for clients, but for myself multiple times. I have had to change business models and stop providing certain kinds of work or you know, things happen. Um, that is the reality of starting or running a business and it can feel like a roller coaster. There are days where, you know, especially early stage in a business where anybody will experience what seems like a huge potential or actual success. And then there's a challenge and, um, perseverance is therefore very important and humility and willing to, uh, a willingness to find the best people and the best support is so important. Another thing is, um, I said it before, but it's so important understanding why the people who you want to serve want you and not just why you want to be there. It's really crucial. Um, and I think in terms of a general skill, and it is very general, I think the most valuable skill in an entrepreneur is the figure it out mentality. It's not necessarily about deep expertise in any one area. Um, though that is extremely important to have on hand. It's really about the willingness and critical thinking ability to solve any problem in a creative way. Find the resource to fix it, 
find the information and, ad- and, ad- and adapt it or, or apply it. Um, I think that's essential. And there's actually a book called The E-Myth, which I read very oh, early yes. before I launched my business, <laughs> which talks all about that exact example. It takes somebody who is an expert pie baker and he decides to start his own bakery and he spends more of his time running the books and doing sales and everything else than baking pies. And he realizes it's not his strength. Just because he's expert at pies does not mean he's an expert pie making business vendor or, or entrepreneur. Um, so, so really understanding those differences and it's okay to be either one. The content expert is extremely valuable, but it's different than being the generalist who can bring together and motivate the right team and understand, you know, see the forest through the trees and plan accordingly. Mm, for sure. Uh, that's a really good point. That's a really great book, actually, as well. I agree. Did you have to do any mindset shift? Because I know I certainly did. Like coming from an activist background, you know, issues around money and, and business. Did you have to do any kind of mindset shifts around that at all? Or was it kind of a bit more smooth sailing for you? I absolutely did. Uh, but it was an evolution. Um, early on in my activist career, I was driven by uh, pain and anger, you know, pain around the suffering and frustration at the system that we have and how it, how it harms animals and people in the environment. And over time, I started to realize that I, there, was a, there was absolute, under, I, I, I didn't blame myself for that. There's legitimacy in being angry, but I decided that having impact was more important. The chicken in that cage does not care if I'm angry. They care if I'm effective. They care if I'm going to help get them out of that cage and make sure that no other ever returns. And um, my tone and my focus changed from, um, you know, what was actually a self-centered focus on, you know, wallowing in anger to a focus on impact. Uh, It's similar to the effective altruism movement that has really come about, which I'm a big fan of. And when I thought about how to apply my skills For years, I considered myself, and I still do in some ways, very opposed to or very troubled by the capitalistic systems we have or the market-based economy or the cruelty that is inherent in so many of these structures. But at a certain point, I realized that the tools that we have available to us can be employed in ethical, sincere, and fair ways to make a difference, and that is what I'm doing. So in that way, if I can, you know, approach this business in a way that I will always honor and respect my commitment to my clients and to the other stakeholders like the animals, then it can make a huge difference and I can be proud of that. And I I think that's how I've approached the business. And I think that that's a way that we can make a huge difference without sacrificing our values. Um, But it is a mind shift. Fortunately, mine was evolutionary and not uh, too jolting. Yeah, I agree. I think mine's been the same. Sometimes I kind of, you know, I'm on Facebook and I'm looking through and sometimes I kind of feel pulled back. And I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a, an entrepreneur. And I, I was kind of saying, sometimes I feel like I've got to choose between being an activist and being an entrepreneur. And then and then I talk to someone like you and I'm like, no, actually, I don't. You know, we can do the same. So <laughs> thank you for that. So very final question, David, what's your, you've touched a little bit on and you said you're going to be hiring some, some new people in the coming year. What's your long term vision? for plant-based solutions and for yourself? So I want plant-based solutions to be the leading service provider in multiple categories to help vegan product businesses launch 
and scale in the market to success so that we make all of the non-vegan products ridiculously untenable, undesirable, unattractive, and useless. <laughs> That's my That's goal. Really, that's a very good goal. It sounds like it's similar to my goal of I call it vegan world domination, one business at a time. And I think that fits in very nicely with that. That's wonderful. That's exactly where we are. Yeah. <laughs> and and long term, we will look to other business models beyond the traditional branding and marketing strategy that we do now to provide value. So that obviously includes the investment component that we focus on now, in addition to our traditional work. And there are other things we may explore in the future. Um, I want to be very careful about that and do it thoughtfully. There are certain things I won't do. So for example, you know, I don't expect to launch a distribution company here in the United States or something like that because the market is just not viable for it. So with every kind of consideration, we would really think about how to approach it in a way that would be um, reasonably impactful or very impactful, reasonably sustainable and, and likely to succeed um, and to be something we are people of and I can bring in the right team to manage. So those are some of our, of our thinking around how to expand. But right now, we're focused and committed to helping our clients be shockingly successful and, uh, as you said, dominate the market and the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. David, you've been so generous in sharing so much information here. I think the vegan business and owners and entrepreneurs are going to be so happy and grateful to get this kind of insights and information um, from you. And, uh, you know, for anybody listening that's in the U.S. and you need help with your business, plant-based solutions is definitely the, the way to go. So thank you very, very much, David, for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I should also mention we work a lot with companies outside the U.S. who are looking to enter the U.S. market. So I wouldn't say oh, that we're cool. expert in other geographies, but many of our clients are overseas and they want an expert in the U.S. to say, here's how I launch in this massive economy. Um, and we are a great resource for that. So we'd love to speak to anybody about those opportunities. Wonderful. Brilliant. Thank you for clarifying that. That's excellent. Thank you very much, David. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. I really appreciate the opportunity. So that was David Benzaquen from Plant-Based Solutions. You can find out more at plantbasedsolutions.com. And that link is on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts. Now for our vegan business news roundup. U.S. frozen meal delivery service Vistro has rebranded to expand its appeal outside the vegan and vegetarian markets to attract mainstream consumers, reports Food Navigator. The company's logo has been updated along with a new slogan, Plants Please, which is a play on words to communicate that the company's meals aim to please. The theme of happiness and joy continues via Vistro's website and also its packaging. Generic boxes will be replaced by bold pre-printed ones that promote the brand's new image. Vistro is also moving into a much larger production facility and plans to open a distribution facility on the East Coast. All this was made possible by an injection of $1.5 million in capital. So it's great to see vegetarian and vegan businesses jumping on the plant-based bandwagon and going outside their core market to target non-vegans. A German company has created what it claims to be the world's first vegan wooden sneakers. According to Oddity Central, NA2 sneakers are made from 90% sustainable wood. 
To make it flexible, the wood is applied to an organic cotton and vector engraved in a way that the material bends and becomes soft and flexible like a fine nappa leather, giving a smooth and fine feel. And apparently you can smell the wood and see the tree's natural texture in the sneakers. The unisex wooden sneakers have four different low top and high top models in various colours and wooden tones. They're expected to go on sale in Germany soon and if successful will expand into other markets. The vegan butcher store trend continues. After a couple of places opened in the US earlier this year, a business owner in Ireland has taken up the baton. Bart Sover opened his eponymous store, Sover, in Dublin this month, serving up vegan delights such as chia burgers, seaweed chowder and kelp caviar, reports Dublin Live. After two years of running the eatery as a pop-up at various locations, Sover is delighted to find a permanent home. The restaurant seats around 40 people and customers are allowed to bring their own beer. So this is an exciting development for Ireland and let's hope that Sova is a huge success. Tattoo and makeup star Kat Von D has committed to turning her entire cosmetics range vegan. She made the pledge in the latest issue of Leica magazine, which is a fantastic vegan lifestyle print and digital publication available alongside mainstream fashion media in newsagents in the US and other places. Von D is the cover model and discusses her passion for animals and commitment to veganism. While her new Kat Von D beauty makeup products are vegan, some of the older lines contained beeswax and carmine. She told Leica, I have a platform and this to me is the number one most important issue on this planet. So this is so cool as is Kat herself, of course. (laughs) She's got a huge social media following, around 24 million at the time of this report, combined across Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. So that's some serious influence and it's fantastic to see Kat spread the message that you can be cool and funky and compassionate. British supermarket chain Iceland has released its own brand of vegan ice cream, reports the Daily Mail. Made from avocado and banana instead of dairy, Nana is currently available in three flavours, vanilla, strawberry and chocolate. Each pot costs £1.50 and each ice cream has a banana-based twist on its name. Strawbana, which is strawberry and banana, vanilla, which is banana and vanilla, and choconana, which is chocolate and banana. So vegans are obviously delighted with the release of the new products and of course the company is also catering to health conscious customers as well as those with allergies. Finally, a chef in Stockport in the north of England in the UK is about to bring fine vegan dining to the area, reports the Manchester Evening News. Matthew Nutter, owner of the allotment vegan restaurant, has made some bold claims. I can make aubergine taste better than steak and cauliflower taste better than chicken, he told the newspaper. And just as an aside, the media love sound bites like this, so come up with some for your business and you're more likely to be quoted. Nutter has spent the past few years running a pop-up vegan restaurant in Liverpool. Now he's got two other chefs working with him and a professional kitchen at the new eatery in Stockport. 
He's determined to shake up the food scene, claiming that many traditional vegan restaurants with home cooks serve up limited fare. He also challenges meat eaters to check out his restaurant. Expect more flavours and textures on one plate than you'd get in a standard three-course meal in your local restaurant, he says. So again, that's a really great quote. The media love controversy and bold claims, and it really helps you to stand apart from your competition. The allotment is set to open on 18th of August on Vernon Street. So if you live in the northwest of England, be sure to go and check it out. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please consider giving it a review and a rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. I'm Katrina Fox from veganbusinessmedia.com and I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode. Bye for now. 